Welcome to The Hammer, the podcast that hammers down on the issues that matter. I'm your host, Mary-Kate Feeney, and I'm here to bring you thought-provoking discussions and compelling stories from the heart of our community, Framingham. Each episode, we'll explore the incredible individuals and organizations making a real impact and shedding light on the pressing challenges we face. So grab a seat, tune in, and get ready to be informed and empowered. Let's start the conversation. Today, Kathy Miles joins me on the Hammer podcast. Kathy is the chair of Framingham Force, fostering opioid recovery, compassion, and education, which she founded in 2018. Along with her work supporting those in recovery from substance use disorder, Kathy has served the Framingham community on the committee to break the silence for Voices Against Violence, the boards of Framingham Services Coalition, Leadership Metro West, and Hoops and Homework. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great. And um, as a member of the Framingham Force Board, I think this is even more special to just talk about this great work uh, that Force has been doing. So since you started Force in 2018, um, what was your motivation? So it's an interesting question because um, I have a loved one who's in recovery from substance use disorder. And while um, while I was struggling with this loved one in, in active addiction, <clears throat> I would sort of lay awake at night thinking, you know, what can I do to make a change? What can I do to help? And it really felt so, so very over- overwhelming. And as happens with most, um, once my loved one entered recovery, things became a little bit clearer. And I was able to sort of focus on, you know, what I thought the great, what I thought were the greatest needs or where the holes were in, in things that people were doing, because there really is a lot of things that people are doing. And I just thought there wasn't, there was so much silence, um, all of the support groups I went to, it was sort of like what says what's said here stays here, um, and all of it was just sort of. I, I just thought like how how are people going to get better when nobody's willing to talk about it, and so I wanted to create a space where people could talk about it, where it could be public, and you know sort of figure out what the public needs were, and um, and I put together a board specifically. Uh, of people who had lived experience like myself, but also people who didn't have lived experience. So I could sort of see where, I don't want to say stigma because people on my board don't have the stigma, but where I could see where people's reactions would come from both sides of the issue. So that's what I did. Yeah. I mean, at least, you know, for me as a board member, I don't have the actual lived experience, but I have lived it through my friends Right, uh, exactly. Right, and so that's different than a family member or you know, a partner, or um, and so it, it's been very interesting to see also from my angle how families talk about it or don't talk about it or how society treats it. And while the board members may not be engaging in that stigma, it is we are all in it together to fight that stigma. Right, exactly. Um, why? What is it that we? do or that force does to support those in recovery? We like to say recovery happens. So I think, you know, and this has sort of evolved over time, it's not really how we necessarily started out. Um, How we started out actually was sort of counterintuitive to what I wanted to do. And that was having a vigil for the people who 
who passed, uh, died from opioid overdose, which we're still going to do and we'll probably talk about later. But I really wanted to focus more on recovery. And some of the things that we do is we sort of bridge the gap between when somebody come, comes out of uh, a program, they're often, they've often alienated all of those that they've left behind for, for obvious or maybe not so obvious reasons. But, um, you know, it's a disease of unlikable people, you know, for a lack of a better uh, way to describe it in the sense that when you're in active addiction, you're not necessarily the nicest person. And so you, you often come out of a recovery program without any money, without any friends, without the support of your family. And, you know, you want to start rebuilding your life um, to have your best chance at recovery and staying in recovery. And so we try to help support people in that way. We give them money or we give them support or we help them explore interests or um, I'd like to start a program of helping to pay first month rent or last month's rent or, or some other things um, to support recovery. But we also we also do education. Um, we have a campaign of Words Matter um, and other other things like that. Yeah, let's talk about the Words Matter campaign. Um, why do words matter? And what words are we talking about? So I think the biggest thing of words matter, which is true of any disease or anything, is that it's called people first language. So in other words, we don't say somebody is an addict. We say somebody with an addiction. We don't want to define somebody by their their disease. So how we say the words matter. But we also don't want to use words like clean and dirty. You know, we want to use in recovery or active addiction. We don't want to, again, we don't want to use active. We want to say somebody um, with a substance use problem. We don't want to say abuse. We want to say substance misuse. And um, and I think they matter because they they give a picture of the person who is in active addiction, that is not necessarily accurate. Um, they are a person with a disease or with a, with a brain chemistry that's not operating correctly. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't categorize other diseases the same way. We don't categorize diabetes or a heart condition um, with the same kind. And, and it's really prevalent in healthcare. It's, it's prevalent in a, in a lot of things. So, it's important to recognize the science behind the disease. And I think, I think we have a, a ways to go, but we've come a long way. Right. It's about recognizing the humanity. Right. Exactly. You know, this is, you know, addiction can happen to anyone at any time in any family, regardless of, you know, where you live and right. your education. Right. Just um, something that affects your brain differently. Like I... You know, it's just like, why is why can one person have a drink and another person can't, right? I mean, some people can have a glass of wine every night for dinner and, and nothing will ever happen, right? And another person takes one drink and that's it. Right, right. And so by using the correct words, we're still recognizing the human. Right, exactly. And also giving hope. Right, right. I think actually that is a really good point and I'm I'm glad you bring it up because, again, I think when when my loved one was in active addiction, I just thought there 
I mean, first I was just ignorant and thought, okay, we got this. This is going to be over in, you know, a day or two. You know, we call the doctor, we do this, and it's over. Then I quickly learned that doesn't happen like that. But then the opposite happened. I just thought, like, oh, my God, how will we ever crawl our way out of this? And partly because people that are in recovery don't talk about it. You know, they don't want to say, I had a problem, I've overcome the problem because of the stigma associated with it. So you never really know about the people that recover. You just don't hear about it. You don't hear that maybe your next door neighbor, you know, used to have um, a problem with addiction and now they don't anymore. So to get hope, you need to hear that people have overcome it and it is possible. And that's our slogan, right? Recovery happens, you know. And uh, so that's I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And what more can we all do about words? That we're using. I mean, we did have the pledge on Framingham Force. Beyond taking a pledge, what is it that is to ourselves that we can do to spread this in our community, to our family? What more do we need to do? Well, I think it's a little bit about, you know, speaking up, not being a, you know, being an active bystander instead of, you know, an observer, an inactive bystander and doing it in a compassionate way, because I don't, you know, if somebody says substance abuse and I hear it all the time, I hear it, you know, from people who are in the field and not everybody means Mm-hmm. negative things for us. I don't, you know, if I read an article and somebody uses a word, I might send them a private note and say, hey, you know, it would be better if you use this terminology. So just making people aware because, I mean, in all things, words matter, right? I mean, how we refer to people matters. So I think educating people and also just knowing because times change, <laughs> you know, knowing what's the correct terminology to use at the correct time, because it's not always the same. And I find myself sometimes using the wrong words. So I think um, just quietly, you know, mm-hmm. unobtrusively, you know, not offending people. You know, I, I don't like to call people out on the spot and say, you know, well, that's an ignorant, ignorant statement. You know, it's just kind of like, you know, maybe you might want to think about using this word and this is why. Right. Right. The pandemic, COVID-19, which we are still in many ways coming out of, a lot of things changed, but the numbers, the opioid numbers uh, have gone up. It, the So many people were left behind, lonely, and so... And in the midst of their active addiction, there were relapses. I'm not telling you anything that, right. that we haven't right. known. Um, but for those listening, um, Enforce had to pivot a bit. Talk about what Force had to do, because the mission then changed. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we did um, was we created activities for people that were in recovery homes. So we we brought yoga to recovery homes. We brought arts and crafts. And, you know, it sounds like a really simple thing, but just buying like coloring books and crayons and journals for people in recovery because they law, you know, addiction is a disease of isolation. And um, many of the people in recovery really, really depend on interaction with other people. They're groups that they go to, the Alcoholics Anonymous or um, Narcotics Anonymous or 
suboxone groups or whatever groups they go to, and they couldn't do that anymore. They were all shut down. So we tried to find activities for them to do. We bought basketball hoops, and um, sometimes we just repurposed things. You know, One of the big things we did is we got laptops for people um, so that they could attend their meetings virtually. They could go, you know, all the AA meetings or the NA meetings or the other support groups, they all turned to virtual. And so people needed laptops to be able to, to, to go to them. Um, and also some people decided to go back to school and they needed laptops so that they could do that to become recovery coaches. Um, also telehealth, you know, became big. So people needed laptops for that. So, you know, it's tricky because, some laptops got legs and, and left the recovery homes where they were because not everybody is successful at their first or second or third time. But, you know, we wanted to give everybody the best chance at, um, at recovery. And so that was a big part of, of what we do. And we still do it a little bit, you know, we give. And again, you know, we didn't have to go out and buy, you know, we, we operate on a really shoestring budget. Um, we don't pay anyone. All our board members are volunteers, um, including myself and, and you. And, um, and so we repurpose things. You know, I would put a note out on Facebook, anybody have any laptops they want to give away? So we weren't giving them state-of-the-art laptops. We were just giving them, you know, laptops that they could use. Yeah, that's something else, like, you know, when someone's in active recovery, they've in many cases lost everything. Right. And so that's part of the support that force provides is trying to figure out, all right, well, this laptop program was a great idea because now everything's virtual. Right. What do you do? Um, I remember we bought um, gift cards to market basket. Mm -hmm. Yep. For people to get food because again, they don't have any food. You know, they come out there, they might be living on their own and, you know, they don't have a job or they can't find a job or, or they have a job and it all goes to pay their rent, but it doesn't go for food. And there's, you know, there are a lot of food banks around and those are wonderful, but they don't, sometimes they don't cover everything you need or they're not the food you want. So to give people a little bit of autonomy to be able to buy the things that they need or want, or sometimes it might just even be a treat, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> something that, uh, something that they're not going to get at a, at a food bank, you know, so. And there is, we know, as you said, like, you know, person may not be successful the first couple of times that they go through recovery, but we are also showing a sign of trust mm -hmm. and faith. Right. And also understanding, I think, importantly, understanding that we know it might not work the first time and, you know, it's okay. Get back up. Um, what's important is that you're still committed to it and it's not linear. So I think, again, that's a big thing about the stigma, right? I mean, you think like, oh my God, you know, this person relapsed. They're not serious. They're not interested. I mean, they often would say nobody wants to get better, you know, than the person themselves. Like you, you can't want it more than them. You know, it's just not always possible right. initially. Right. Um, where do you see the next couple of years as the aftermath of the pandemic continues to shake out when it comes to recovery? What's force going to do here in Framingham? What, what do you do you see the demand going up? I think the biggest problem we face right now and 
um, we can talk a little bit about that is this is homelessness, you know, and people that don't, there aren't enough shelters. There aren't enough places for people to go. There aren't enough places for people to live. Housing is so expensive in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I don't know. I mean, I would, like I said, I would like to see force be able to help people get settled in a, in a, you know, in a housing situation, but, I don't know if it's sustainable. That's the problem. You know, we could give them first and last, you know, month's rent, but then how do they make all their, you know, rental payments in between? So I think that that's going to be a big problem. I think an, another problem is lack of lack of mental health workers. You know, they're just, you know, aren't enough. <laughs> you know, it's hard to find a therapist. It's hard to find a therapist for your child. It's hard to find somebody. Um, they're all, many of them are not taking new patients. So I don't know. And also not insurances don't pay for everyone because mm -hmm. the therapists that are there can be really picky about what insurances they take. So mm -hmm. again, another thought I had, and, you know, of course, being a board member, these are all things I would run by my board, but what about helping people with copays, you know, for, for things that their insurance may not cover for mental health challenges, um, partnering with a lot of other organizations, which I do right now. Um, we partner with the, um, suicide prevention. We partner with voices against violence. We partner with all of these things that are sort of tied into substance use. So I, I think we're going to see a lot more, of spin out problems, I guess you could call it. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I'm sure there are people listening right now thinking, well, why does Framingham Forest have to do any of this? Because we have all these social uh, services in Framingham. But there's only so many people. There's only so many resources. And it's a, we do collaborate with so many. Right. And also, I don't think, I don't think people do what we do. I mean, I've taken some of our earmark money or our, our gift cards. And I've given them to the social service agencies like SMOC or, um, you know, th those people have, and this is not meant to be a diss on them. Mm -hmm. They have higher bureaucracies about how they can spend their money. And we have a small little board. So yes, we have some controls about how we spend our money, but we can really get to the meat of things. We don't have overhead, you know? So um, I gave, a bunch of money to advocates that they could use um, Well, I gave them gift cards that they could use for some of their clients couldn't get to, couldn't get to their appointments. So they used it for Uber gift cards, you know? Um, so I forget where we were going with this, but <laughs> no, no, this is about a collaboration with the, the social right, services. Right, right. Or even the court systems, you know, we help, we have a um, recovery court, which used to be called the drug court in Framingham, serves some of the other communities as well. And so people, but we don't have any inpatient facilities in Framingham. So the people that are in this recovery court are scattered throughout Massachusetts and they can't get to, they can't get here. So they need to take Ubers. Um, but the courts don't have any money to provide Ubers for them. So we have a fund um, that's administered through JRI, Justice Resource Institute, another organization that we partner with. And we give them money and they administer um, Uber rides for people to get to recovery courts. So those are things that, yeah, we have all these social service agencies, but here are all these little holes that prevent people. Um, you know, what they do is wonderful. It's, mm -hmm. it's not... 
um, it's nothing bad about what they do, but then it it ends. Where's the con- you know where's the next step? How do they get to the next step? Right, and and a force can be there to fill those gaps. Right, for things that people probably don't even think about, exactly like rides to right. court. Oh, of right. course. <laughs> Uh, and when you talk about housing, it's very interesting. Housing has been this very undercurrent for all these other podcasts, uh, episodes that I've been doing about the crisis um, yeah. and, and how we need more affordable housing in Framingham. We're building all these apartments that aren't affordable right. for average people. Right. And people are resistant to adding more affordable housing because they think it, you know. Well, speaking of stigmas. Right. Exactly. Speaking of stigmas. But, you know. I know that I know plenty of, you know, people that can't afford to live here, <laughs> you know, yeah. and no more deserving than any than anyone else. And, and I overheard someone recently just said, you know, it's that coming up with that first and last payment. Right. That's a huge chunk of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I can't imagine starting over and then having to produce that amount. Well, keep that thought in your head. I, I will. Don't don't you worry. Yes, <laughs> that's we'll, we'll figure that out. That's something I'm thinking of for that. Right. So one of the other things that's come up through the uh, opioid epidemic is um, settlements from the pharmaceutical companies. And last I saw, Framingham is receiving or has received $1.45 million from the Massachusetts opioid settlement. And that money is going to be in a dedicated opioid stabilization fund. Um, and the mayor has appointed you to the committee to help decide how to spend that money. What do you, what do you think, what's the role of the city and what should this money be used for? Well, I've been very vocal, at least in these meetings and we have, you know, some very knowledgeable people, you know, we have the director of human resources, we have the, um, CFO, um, director of finance and administration. We have the fire chief and the police chief and um, Lincoln Lynch from uh, the schools. And so, um, but what we don't have, like other cities and towns have, we don't have a centralized person that deals with the opioid crisis, right? So um, Natick has Katie Sugarman and... um, uh, Ashland has Kristen, so Natick 180, and Ashland has decisions at every turn, which is um, which is uh, Kristen French and other places. So I think you know we need a more centralized place for people to sort of triage, if you will, you know what what to do. I think that's one thing we need, um, and I think, I mean, we right right now, you know, because we lost our our public health nurse, but now we, we have a new one. Um, we weren't even, you know, able to give out Narcan. So we are, we are now able to do that. But one of the things that the committee decided to do was to have a needs assessment to really see what, Mm -hmm. what our needs are, um, in Framingham. Um, we have post opioid overdose, um, awareness team that goes out to people after an overdose. Um, we have people that go to the hospitals after, after some of the, um, overdoses and and talk to people about getting into treatment. So I think we need, we need a central person that has their pulse on what is going on in Framingham. And I, I, I'm not sure if that's, you know, I, I think after we have the needs assessment, we'll be able to, Decide. I think part of the problem is in this 
would be true of any committee. I don't think it's a bad thing, but when you have, you know, 10 people, 10 different people are going to have, you know, if you want to approach it from a police standpoint, if you want to approach it from a, you know, from the fire department standpoint, if you want to approach it from the health departments or from a human resource. So, um, it's it's hard to get everybody on the same page. Right. But hopefully an assessment of where we are. Right. And where and, those gaps right, are. Right. And I know helpful. a lot of people think like, oh, the last thing we need to do is spend money. But it's short money that we're spending. And it's somebody going out there and, and doing a needs assessment. And, um, and also tapping into the other resources that we already have, mm-hmm. you know, and seeing where the gaps are. So uh, like you said, I think it's important to point out where the gaps are. Yeah, we do. We need a map. Right. Exactly. So that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, I look forward to, do you know when that might begin, if there's a timeline on that? Um, I, f- I believe, um, so, oh, the needs assessment, I think yeah. it's just, st- I think it started already. Okay. I think there was some issues with the transition of the health director mm-hmm. and, you know, all of those things. Right. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing what the results are and Same. moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you talked about earlier one of the big things that FORCE does uh, are the flags, right. holding a vigil. Um, and so August 31st is Opioid Overdose Awareness Day. And if you're driving down Edgel and you pass the Framingham Center Common, you will see purple flags. Right. So that I started to say at the very beginning, one of the very first things we did, and this was um, Sam Wong's idea, our old health director, but he, he said, you know, we should do something right around the holidays because it's very difficult for people that have lost loved ones. And I didn't really want, you know, I, I didn't really want to start with like a negative, you know, mm-hmm. even though it's a reality. I didn't want to start with people dying. But but I did think it was very useful. And you really can't talk about the, even though I want Framingham Force to be upbeat and focus on recovery, you, you really can't uh, ignore that many people die. So in Massachusetts alone, in one year, there's over 2,000 people for the last whatever years. And, and like you mentioned before, during the pandemic, these numbers have gone up over 2000 people that have died from opioid overdoses. And we plant a purple flag for every life that is lost. Um, we don't count out exactly, although some other people, and I stole this idea from Natick does it. And um, I think Marlboro does it. Mm-hmm. And it's really just a visual of what the epidemic looks like. And it's very um, cathartic for people who have lost someone. We have people come out, you know, the board takes the responsibility of putting the flags down and we do that. We get a permit from the city so we can start anytime from August 1st on. And, um, and we just put the flags down, you know, and it's a very solemn time where you just plant a flag and you think, Every flag represents someone who died. And then we have silver flags for people to um, uh, monogram or write someone's name and the date on it if they want so that, you know, we can remember the people that have died. And then on August 31st at the culmination, we have um, a short program where we just talk about what the problem is. People can get up and speak if they lost someone, which almost always there is someone there Mm -hmm. who has lost someone. Um, and they can speak. And we just sort of, we moved it. It used to be around the holidays, but we moved it because it was just too cold. And um, when the 
<clears throat> church closed and we couldn't go in the church because of the pandemic. Right. So we moved it to August 31st. And, and it always seems to snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even in August. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it hasn't snowed in August. But yeah, it always seemed to snow and... Um, and we couldn't get it. We couldn't get the flags in the ground because the ground was frozen. So we decided to do it in August. And I'd like to maybe go back to doing something um, for people who holidays are just really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, just some sort of acknowledgement for them. But that's another thing to think about. I have a lot of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. But it's great. You know, as, um, as someone who's helped put out these flags every year, it is a very, yeah, it's a solemn thing. But the amount of people who pass us who say thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that again shows the universalness. Right. And I, I mean, I think probably almost everybody knows somebody either suffering in recovery or sadly who has passed. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I know way too many people who have passed um, because of it. So I, I think it's, it's very meaningful and it it's just a when you drive by and you see what 2000 flags look like and this is just you know opioids actually although you know we have sort of morphed a little bit into other substances but this is just over 2000 of just opioid overdoses mm -hmm. you know and that's not alcoholism or you know Xanax or benzos or other types of you know kind of crazy it is um, well, thank you, Kathy. Well, you're um, welcome. How, if people are interested in Framingham Force, getting involved or wanting to learn more or donate to the cause, <laughs> uh, how do they find you? So we have a webpage. It's framinghamforce.org. So, um, and it's, you know, um, you can find all the information on there. We have a email info at framinghamforce.org. Um, we have a phone number. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it recently changed, but it's on our webpage. Um, so they can and they can make a donation through um, PayPal or PayPal Giving Fund. If they don't, if you have an account with PayPal, you can use PayPal Giving Fund and you don't have to pay any fees. You can send a check. We have a P.O. box, P.O. 1033, Framingham 01703. So all of that is on our webpage. So I, you know, look forward to hearing from anyone. Great. It's wonderful. Okay. As I always do with all these interviews, <laughs> the much feared rapid fire questions. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Framingham is. Uh, I would say diverse and a great place to live. Okay. Framingham needs. More community participation. I agree. What is your favorite place in Framingham? My house. <laughs> oh, like That's good. Okay, now this is this is the toughest question. You ready? <clears throat> Framingham is known for its love of pizza and is home to many different styles and loyal followings. What is your favorite pizza in Framingham? I would have to say Gianni's. It pains me, but I have to say Gianni's because I think they could be a little nicer people. <laughs> <laughs> but I like their pizza. <laughs> I did say recently, I love, I do love Gianni's. I do like some sass with my pizza, I guess. <laughs> on that note, thank you so much, Kathy. I really, really appreciate you thank coming you. on the show. No, I thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
And that concludes another episode of The Hammer. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to The Hammer Podcast so you never miss out on future discussions. You'll find The Hammer on the Substack app, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. The Hammer Podcast is recorded at the Access Framingham Studios. Big shout out to Jason and his team for all their help every week. Thank you for listening. And remember, believe in Framingham.